Hi, welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I'm delighted to be joined today by Matteo Scarapore. He was a 2018 Rhode Island Writers Colony writer in residence, and his writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, Catapult, Rumpus, Medium, and elsewhere. He lives in Brooklyn. Black Buck is his debut novel. Welcome, Matteo. Thanks so much for having me, Maris. You are literary royalty. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matteo, you used to work in tech, mm -hmm. as did I, but tech startups are especially meaty for skewering, I feel like. Mm -hmm. T tell me about your experience. Yeah, my experience working at a tech startup was uh, full of ups and downs. I initially came in to interview to actually write video content at this startup. And it's funny because back then I wasn't thinking about being a writer. I said, let me just get this job. This startup seems cool. Startups in general seems cool to me, even though I, I wasn't even directly pursuing working at them. This one just came up and they were teaching people how to use the internet. I said, that sounds very egalitarian. So I went in and after one or two interviews, they said, listen, man, we just hired two guys to write this video content. So it's not gonna work out for you, but we like your energy. Would you like to intern here? And before I could say yes or no, another guy rushed into the room and he said, chill out, you already got the internship. I said, what internship? And I was, I was basically roped in to work there for a couple of days a week for free. I wasn't being paid. I just mm. graduated from NYU and I had all these friends making 60, 70 K. I graduated magna cum laude. And then when I told my parents, hey, I'm going to work for a <laughs> tech startup for free and they're not even going to give me a Metro card. I said, what? <laughs> so I was waking up at 4 a.m. being driven to the city with my mom because she's a, she's a nurse and she works in Manhattan. And it was a grind, but it was incredible. And it's exactly what I needed that, at that time in my life. Mm. I was 21. I was hungry. Uh, I wanted to be a part of something larger than myself. And all the cars just lined up with this organization. And a few years later, I started the sales team. Well, not even a few years, about uh, eight, eight, ten months later, I started the sales team with the CEO. Um, I had never formally sold before. And then the team grew from me to 90 people on the sales team. I ended up managing 30. And then by the end of it, I was disillusioned with the world of startups and sales and didn't want to work with them full time. And when I began writing, I was writing about things very different from what has come to be Black Buck. But it was after writing two manuscripts that didn't get anywhere that I turned back to my previous history as a salesman. Mm. Um, I, I dove deeper into the world of startups. I intertwined race, which is something that, of course, I, I think about every day. I can't not think about it. I'm yes. a black man in America. And fortunately, it all came together in what I think is a, a beautiful way in, in Black Buck. I think so too. Wow, I just um, answered probably like five questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> so you've structured the book as a quote unquote cautionary tale, but it's also like an, an actual business book. People say that. Tell me about, like, have you read a ton of business books? I've read a good amount. Um, when, you're, when you're working at a startup and uh -huh. you yeah. are hungry and you're trying to get in or you envision like I did that you're going to run your own company one day, you, you read up, you read up on the yep. startup canon. There, uh, there's uh, just a bunch of different books. Only the paranoid survive, the hard thing about hard things, <laughs> or takes care of itself, lean startup. Yep. 
you know, highly the habits of highly effective people or, or whatever. You know, there's there's all these books, but when I when I was working at the startup, I read those books mm-hmm. and I read more. I read sales specific books. The books that I was reading or were handed to me were uh, the Little Red Book of Selling and the Sales Bible by a man named Jeffrey Gittimer. And I loved his energy on the page. I loved how no nonsense his advice was, the way that he'd walk you through different strategies. And it was, it was incredible. So when I was writing this book around the fourth draft, I said, you know what? I loved those books by Jeffrey Gittimer. I, I love uh, How to Get Filthy Rich and Rising Asia, where yep. the beginning of every chapter is uh, some adage or, or some piece mm-hmm. of how to get filthy rich and rising Asia. And at the time, I was also reading The Residue Years by Mitchell S. Jackson. Yeah. And he breaks the fourth wall. So I had already known by that point, from the beginning of the book, I knew that I wanted to double as a sales manual. But by, by, I got, by the time I got to the fourth draft, I said, whoa, let's take it a step. <laughs> let's actually break the fourth wall and let's not break it in a way that's on the low, but let's break it conspicuously. Yeah. So how do I and do bold. that? I'm going to bold it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to set it apart from the remainder of the text and I'm going to say, reader, you <laughs> know I'm talking to you or excuse me, not just me, but, but Darren who becomes Buck, who's actually writing this book. Right. So the, the choice of setting it up as a sales manual um, alongside an engaging narrative was extremely intentional, not only because I thought that it would be interesting to me as a writer and, and me putting myself in the shoes of the reader, but also because I want this to be a book that can actually help people get ahead through learning some of these scale skills and gaining a basic proficiency, whether that translates into just being able to ask for more mm-hmm. when you want a higher salary or advocate for yourself in an in interaction where you would typically have um, the lower hand or more concretely, walking into a startup and applying for an entry-level sales role and having a having an edge. Yeah, I, and and it's a remarkable feat to pull off to be able to write great fiction that that is cynical and that is uh, into truth telling, but also have it be inspirational. Tell me about the concept of sales for Darren, the main character in Black Buck. Yeah, so. Darren, um, we don't we don't really see his life too much before the book begins, right? He he alludes to parts of his childhood, especially in relation to the people in this neighborhood. But Darren is the type of individual where when he's passionate about something, he's all in, and he's going to tell his friends about it. He's he's not always going to scream from the rooftops, but he's going to speak about it in a convincing way, right? Whether it's about sports or a film or or something he's reading. So he's working at this job at Starbucks and he's running it like a a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. The people there look up to him. They're a motley crew. He loves them. It's it's a great gig. Um, But there are people in his life, including his mom and including his girlfriend, who believe that he needs to live into his full potential. Very Very American thinking, right? You did well in life. You know, he was valedictorian of his high school, Mm -hmm. but he's working at a Starbucks. And that's not many good of enough. Us, many of us would say that's not good enough, even though for him, it, right. it, at least in the forefront he happy. of the line, he's happy. But when Rhett comes in, Rhett, the CEO of the startup, someone walks in and Darren, for some reason, he can't even articulate why, decides to sell Rhett on a different drink. Rhett sees a version of himself 
in Darren. He sees a salesman and he also sees someone who can help his own company get ahead. So Darren, just like myself, was thrown into the world of sales. And just like myself, he took to it. And there were a handful of pros, but many, many cons. Um, <laughs> and, and throughout the narrative, Darren, again, in terms of that device of breaking the fourth wall, is looking to dispense this information to others while also not running away from his flaws and the mistakes that he made. Yeah. I, one of the things that I don't know, I've noticed about a lot of tech companies that certainly someone, um, S-U-M-W-U-N for listeners. Mm -hmm. um, hey, listeners. <laughs> has this kind of like moral clarity, this idea that like the act of making money and developing this brand is for the greater good of humanity and the world. And it's just the elevated uh, level of what people think that they're doing at startups is is often mm -hmm. uh, not quite there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, Darren, just as 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 you're speaking, I'm thinking about the last question still. <laughs> what sets Darren apart from some other um, people? Right. Let's talk about cash. Cash is green from Sorry to Bother, which people are constantly comparing the book to, even though I don't think it's really that apt of a description. Um, Cash is green. He's like a telemarketer, and he, he just happens to be a guy that's picking up the phone. For Darren, Darren is closer to a Willie Loman or Jordan right. Belfort, right? Or, right. or um, people from Glengarry, Glen Ross, where uh -huh. Sam eventually becomes infused in his DNA. And it was very important for me to convey that because um, that is a parallel between us, even though I'm not, I'm not Darren and Darren's not me. But moving forward in terms of what you said about this attitude that you are changing the world through selling someone a more ergonomic chair. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I, I, again, I'm going to bring it back to America. Right? We're a nation that was forged from pioneers, from people who came over here and said, we are going to build a better and different world. And then they said, let's actually get someone else to do it. We're going to import these people from another country mm -hmm. and just make them do all the labor for us. But that aside, it's a very American thing this manifest destiny, this egocentrism, egocentrism, this idealism of forging ahead. And you see that manifest in these startups where they say, we are pioneers. We are breaking new ground. And we are, the word that they always use is disrupting. Oh, this sure. Entrenched and established and, and uh, horrible behemoth of this industry, whether it's automotive, whether it's space, whether it's damn refrigerators, <laughs> we are the ones that are going to build a better world through selling a better refrigerator. And <laughs> you get a lot of typically young people to come in and buy into that. It doesn't matter what they're selling. And it's not just the salespeople, it's the marketing people, mm -hmm. it's the engineers, it's the uh, content writers, um, it's the community people. Even though they, o they don't always buy in to the same extent that the salespeople do, the whole company establish a culture around being pioneers of this exceptionalism. And then what you do, you get the swag, you got the hat, you got yep. the backpack, you got the slippers, uh, you have the way that you speak, you have the way that you refer to each other, just like you and I are Americans. In the book we see, them referring to each other as some oneers. Um, and then you have <laughs> this mentality that you are better than everyone else that doesn't just understand what you're doing and how exceptional you and your band of pioneers 
at this tech startup in on the 30th floor, 36th floor, wherever uh, the Manhattan high rise are. So there's a fine line between cult and culture in these startups, in the world of business, in corporations in general. And that's something that I definitely wanted to highlight and examine in this book. Yeah. Um, before we go on, I, I do want to mention that I was blown away that the building that Darren works in first at Starbucks and then on the 36th floor is three park <laughs> Avenue, which happens to be where Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, your publisher is located. Oh man. How did it happen? It How was, did it uh, happen? It's, it's life. It's one of those things. I, uh, I'm a very pragmatic individual, right? I'm, I'm an idealist in some ways, but I'm also a realist. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, I, I, I reserve uh, disbelief in coincidences because I, I like to think that there's, there's magic in the world still in, in some ways. And that, me writing this book, setting it in Three Park Avenue, where I also worked, and then picking up the phone for one of my first calls with an editor and um, she's saying, hey, did you write this for us? Like when we read this book, we were thinking that you <laughs> were setting your book in different places based on the publishers that you were submitting to. Oh, what a sales technique that I, is. That would have been <laughs> genius level. I wish I had thought of that, but that's not just how it played out. And, and it was very special for them because as they were reading it and they would walk into work every day, this yeah. is pre-COVID course, they would say, we are seeing the Starbucks where this is taking place. Yes. We are taking the six train where this scene took place. Yes. So for them, it was a bit surreal. And when I found that out, I said, A, that's incredible. B, thank God that we never ran into each other when I was working at that tech startup because we were bugging <laughs> out when we worked at that company. <laughs> and, and C, this is uh, a sign. And fortunately, the call went incredibly well. And I have absolutely, and I really say this with full, with full sincerity, I have nothing bad to say about HMH. It's just been, Amen. and I know it's rare. I know it's rare because people come out here and they got different things to say about the publishers, but every single person I've met there has just been a good human and hardworking and passionate. Um, and it's just, it, it's a gift. That's, that's really great. Tell me a little bit about Darren's entry into the world of someone. Um, you describe a hell week that seems like the most demeaning thing for any human being. But then of course, Darren is the only black person in the company. And he's basically being inducted into a fraternity. He gets his nickname, Buck. H having to break your employees down to build them up seems very scary. Yeah, so there's a few things to break down here. Darren, he does go through a hell week and part of that hell week or an aspect of it is very realistic in terms of my life, in terms of mm. the role plays, the nonstop, the psychological warfare. Um, I didn't experience the same type of workplace racism that okay, Darren good. did by, by, to any extent. I experienced it on the same level, if not more outside of the workplace sure. and, and instances. And I took those experiences and I brought them into the workplace. Um, and I did it intentionally because for many of us, black and brown people in and outside of the workplace, when something racist happens, just transpires in general, whether it's to us or just in front of us, it can feel 
like all the air in the room is getting sucked out. And it could be something extremely innocuous, the way that someone yep. looks at you, the things that someone says. And it could feel more outsized than it is on its face. And I wanted to bring that outsized experience to the page. Yeah. And that's why you see Clyde, the person who um, inducts Darren into this fraternity, as you called it, acting in certain ways. Because even though many of us, and it doesn't even just have to do with race, if you are the only person or one of few in any environment because of your sexual orientation, your gender expression, um, your, your race or your religion, you know what those moments feel like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you don't have to go through exactly what Darren goes through in the book uh, in order to relate to it. You can like um, kind of translate, of, oh, sorry, translate the exactly. microaggressions into like the actual aggressions of the book. The feeling, what, what it feels the feeling. like. Um, and, and the gaslighting as well of when you're like, mm -hmm. hey man, I don't really like you calling me that. And this, it's just a joke. Right. And then imagine if you are one of the only few people in one of these scenarios and you have a hundred other people saying it's just a joke, you know, in your heart, it's not just a joke, but you just, you just, um, give up to get by. Right. It's this, it's this whole thing of take it until you can make it, especially if you are men. And I'm not, I'm not saying men have it easier than women. It's far worse for women in these scenarios. Right. Mm -hmm. But men have this idea and not all men, but we see it with Darren. And this was intentional of, I got to man up. Yep. I got to be the man. I can't act like a whatever, right? Insert crazy words, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that was intentional, but to, to flip what happens on the book on its head a little bit, and in terms of my experience, I came into the world of startups in a different way than Darren did, and I've explained some of that. But when I was on this sales team, I was one of the head people. Mm. I was one of the highest ranking people in the company, but also one of the top two or three um, ranked people in terms of title on the sales team. So I was Clyde in many of these instances, not saying these crazy things. Right, role-playing. But trying to break down these employees. Yeah. Even from the interviews, I was trying to catch people unaware. I tried to catch them slipping. So I would, I would be all buddy-buddy, be saying, hey, where do you like to go out in the city? You like to hit this club or what do you like to do? And then they'd get real relaxed. And then I'd say, great, why do you want to work here? Or I'd say, great, what do we do here? And it was this constant psychological warfare. Yeah. Um, because the way that I justified it, even though it likely wasn't necessary, but the way that I justified it is that for them to not just survive but thrive here, they're going to be able to have, excuse me, they're going to need to have thick skin. Especially yeah. when they're going to call 100, 150 people every day. Mm -hmm. And majority of those people are not going to pick up. Or if they pick up, they're going to say, I don't want to speak to you. So I was like, oh, I'm doing them a service by being this hard on them. And in some ways, it paid, it paid off. And in other ways, it didn't. Um, but we see with Darren, he becomes stronger because of it. But then he also makes very bad choices. And he hurts people who love him unconditionally. Um, and then, you know, without giving too many things away, readers are going to have to read the book to see uh, what else happens. Yeah, I mean, but you, but we're not giving too much away to say like it happens very quickly that mm -hmm. he is so embroiled in his community and such a part of it, and then this entrance into this new group changes everything for him. Mm -hmm. So here's something funny: someone is a therapy startup. Um, 
I like that uh, the people at someone called people who work there as therapists assistants. I have recorded at least two ads <laughs> for therapy based startups uh, on my podcast. Yeah. How did you choose that particular kind of, of sales? Well, it was, it was an actual company that I wanted to start Maris. When I was, yeah, when I was working at um, the startup that I was at, uh, again, I, I had these dreams of building my own company, a company that would, of course, change the world. That's, that's what a lot of people think when they're building a startup. Um, and I had this idea for an organization named someone and for, let's say, let's say, for example, there's someone named Penny. Penny is in Iowa. Penny is going through a tough time. She feels as though no one can understand her. Her parents have been sending her to therapy with a Western trained psychologist, mm -hmm. with a psychologist, let's call her Mildred, is just not reaching Penny. So maybe someone halfway around the world who subscribes to a different faith or following would be able to reach uh, Penny because their thoughts don't conform to this Western ideology. Right. Um, and it would be sort of gig economy, Uber-based, where these people, we'll call them assistants, they don't even have to be certified, right. can just hop on for an hour, get paid, have ratings, hop off. So that was the organization that I planned to build. I had, I had sales pitches, I mm. had website ideas, I had the cost, I had it all set up. Um, especially when I, when I looked at some of these other companies and I was like, yo, these people seem really stale. They're, they're not, they're, they're doing something great. They're doing a great service of providing sure. therapy to people on demand if necessary. I'm not knocking it, but it felt very clinical and I'm sure that was intentional. It had to be official for people to subscribe to talking to a stranger through video and, yes. and divulging their emotions. Yeah. Um, but when it came time to actually do that, um, and before I left the company I was working at, I said, I don't want anything to do with this stuff. I don't want, I don't want to work at a startup anymore. I don't want to build one right now. I want to write. And then years later, when I was writing Black Buck, I said, you know what? I can build this company on the page. And right. now, when people see what happens in the book with the company <laughs> and, and some of the flaws with this some specific of the flaws. type of company called someone, uh, <laughs> there's no way that I'm ever going to build it. There's no turning back to <laughs> this book, Maris. This is it. No, that's it. That's it. Tell me a little more about sales as a way of life and as a way to get ahead. Yeah, well, um, if you work in sales and you survive and you do well, and there's, very, there's many types of sales. Sales is not a monolith, even mm -hmm. though I've been speaking of it as such, right? There's door-to-door there's -door sales, which is sure. completely different than picking up a phone. Mm -hmm. There's selling at those mall kiosks, very different, right? Mm -hmm. but, but sales is also what we're doing right now. Right. Me, yeah. me sharing my perspective, you, you sharing yours. Sales is when political heads get up on the podium and tell you drain the swamp or tell you si se puede or tell you all these things, right? It's all sales in my opinion. And I do believe that um, whether we accept it or not, sales pervades every aspect of our lives. When I tell someone I love you, I'm selling them on that belief that I actually love them. Um, so I think that if you first believe that sales is all around you, and then you look to dissect the different places, 
that it pops up throughout your life or that throughout the lives of others it's when you're walking down the street or when you're listening to a podcast or the Marist Review, right? <laughs> um, you can begin to see the ways that it's impacting you and then the ways that you can use it to impact others, hopefully positively. But sales is also regarded as this sleazy profession, the used car salesman, right? The, the door-to-door salesman, the people <laughs> nowadays running around trying to sell you cheap energy, the dubious. Right? You don't know if they're just trying to get you or trying to one-up you in order for some financial gain to manipulate you. Um, but I think that if we take a step back and we say, what are the good aspects of sales, then people will realize that you can use them to get ahead. And what does that mean? To get the job you want, to uh, inspire other people, to chase their own dreams, to uh, pass laws to have a really positive influence on yourself and those you love and those you're looking to impact. So that's the, that's the context and lens that I view sales, Maris, as this thing that definitely has darker aspects, but the light far outweighs them. And that's the most remarkable thing, I think, about your book, Mateo. It's that you can go to the heart of darkness and all of these <laughs> things, um, but, but there is so much light. Hmm. Uh, before I let you go, please tell me about a couple of books that you would like to recommend to the listeners. Most definitely. Um, one book by a man named Gerald Walker is How to Make a Slave. I read this a couple weeks ago. I said, wow, this is like a companion book to Black Buck. Um, the, the humor, which underscores the horror of what it's like to be Black in America, but also a Black man, but also his own experience as a black man just really spoke to me um, in, a, in, in a way that other works um, don't always. Another is um, How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. That was one of my favorite books of 2020. The writing is just incredible. You are taken on a journey with these two young women um, who grow up on the Western frontier I'm not going to lie. When I was reading this book, I had to Google whether tigers actually were on the West Coast of America <laughs> back in the day because it just felt so real. Yeah. Um, another is The Spook Who Sat by the Door. That um, possibly more so than How to Make a Slave. And this book by, is by a man named Sam Greenlee. It was written in 1969. That book is probably one-to-one closest to Black Book. Again, another book that I only read um, over the past few months. And I said, whoa. This guy and I are doing the same things decades apart, Amazing. which, uh, depending on how you look at it, could be great or not. And <laughs> um, the last book I'll, I'll recommend is Portnoy's Complaint by Philip okay. Roth. I'm a big Philip Roth fan. And Portnoy's Complaint, wow, that book is crazy. That book, that book is crazy. Is, that book is wild. And it's wild <laughs> for me and, and people who read it today to look at it and say, wow, there's a lot going on. But imagine for all the people who read it decades ago. They it must broke, have been. Wow, it, broke, it was banned. It was censored. People were up in arms about it, but people also loved it. And what, what spoke to me most about that book um, was how unabashed Philip Roth was about the topic of, of sex and taboos and also, funnily enough, therapy. Um, <laughs> Correct. Those are just a couple books. There's so many more, but I don't want to talk people's ears off. Amazing. For now. Uh, Mateo, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Nara, thank you for your time. It's been great. 
Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.